Welcome to season three of the Bible for My Ordinary Life podcast. My name is Alicia Parker and I'll be your host. Are you interested in what the Bible really means or wondering how it's relevant to life today? If so, this podcast is for you. In this season, we are going back to where it all begins, the book of Genesis. No matter what your age or your background or your experience is with the Bible, I believe you can find something fresh and meaningful every time you study it. Hi, my name's Ariana. The Bible is for everyone. <laughs> Thanks, Ariana. All right, friends, let's get started. Hi there. Thanks for making this podcast part of your day-to-day. Whether you're a first-time listener or a regular fan of this podcast, I'm glad you're here. We're working our way through the book of Genesis, taking our time to explore some critical themes that emerge. This episode is no different. Today, we're going to cover two major events in Abram's life, both of which will help us to further our understanding of God's character as well as humanity. You see, God reveals himself to us through his word. And one of the reasons I love studying the Old Testament is because we can learn so much about God through these narratives. We also learn a lot about human nature. And when we know more about God and understand more about our own nature, we can begin to grow more like him. So let's pick up where we left off in the last episode with Abram and his wife Sarai headed with all their possessions and their small community of people down to Egypt. Here's what Genesis 12 verses 10 through 13 has to say. There was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to stay for a while because the famine was severe. As he approached Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, look, I know that you are a beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will keep you alive. So tell them you are my sister so that it may go well for me because of you and my life will be spared on account of you. Now, verse 10 emphasizes the famine by repeating it and noting the second time that it said that it was severe. And we talked in our last episode about how Abram quickly went from worshiping God to making his own plan when his faith was tested. God is never mentioned in this portion of the narrative. Abram never prays or seeks God that we know of. I mean, he's facing a severe famine and he just decides to head to Egypt. And I get it. A severe famine is a big deal. He has a large nomadic community of flocks and people. And so he makes a plan. But his plan does not include God. God had told him to go to Canaan, not Egypt. But in verse 10, we see that Abram's plan was to find relief in Egypt and stay there a while. Now, Egypt was known for being like an oasis of sorts in times of famine for this particular region because the Nile River provided plenty of resources. It had food, fish, also watering for nearby land for their crop growing Rather than head north and stay in the promised land, trusting in God to fulfill his promise, Abram heads south to Egypt. And then we read that he became afraid of a perceived possibility. You see, it occurs to him that Sarai's beauty might motivate an Egyptian to kill Abram so Sarai could become his wife. Abram doesn't trust God to protect in the famine, and here we see that Abram doesn't trust God to protect him from a perceived threat. And so in both cases, Abram makes a plan. 
He tells Sarai to go with the cover story that she's his sister. And in case you're wondering why this is any improvement on the truth, it's always important to consider the cultural differences that exist between our experiences and the biblical ones. The fear of Abram being murdered for his wife's beauty was actually a realistic one. But in this culture, a brother would be seen as a protector of a sister, and a man interested in marrying her would have to like go through the brother to get approval to do so. And so the brother could reject a hopeful suitor's advances on behalf of the sister. So by telling people that Sarai was his sister, Abram would be in a position to reject any advances of men to marry her. Unless, of course, it was Pharaoh, because, you know, no one tells Pharaoh no. So Abram thinks he's got it all figured out. Tell a half-truth and guarantee his protection. But Abram's plan completely backfires. Here's the next few verses in this chapter. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. When Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. So Abram's wife was taken into the household of Pharaoh, and he did treat Abram well on account of her. Abram received sheep and cattle, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Abram wasn't killed like he was worried about, and it did go well for him. He got a lot of stuff from Pharaoh, but he lost his wife. And as I've read over and over this passage this week, I've thought about how this kind of storyline makes for the perfect sitcom. You've got a well-meaning main character who's pretty likable and things are going well for him until he encounters a problem, the famine. And he tries to solve it by going to Egypt. But he makes a really dumb blunder that gets him into a predicament and now he needs a rescue. To me, it sounds like an episode of Seinfeld or Everybody Loves Raymond or Full House. And yes, I know these sitcoms are directly related to my age and my American background. But here's my point. I'm not trying to trivialize the story and make it seem like a goofy TV show you'd laugh along to with the laugh track. What I'm trying to do is to help us see how human Abram is, how his story is so similar to the things we do in our lives or things we would relate to through something like a TV show. Abram was chosen by God to receive tremendous blessings, but it wasn't because he had done anything to earn it, and he certainly wasn't doing anything to stay in God's good favor. But fortunately, God is faithful to his promises, no matter what. And Abram's in a bind, and so God comes to the rescue. Here's the rest of the story. It's verses 17 through 20. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe diseases because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh summoned Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh gave his men orders about Abram, and so they expelled him along with his wife and all his possessions. So Abram finds himself in a bind. His wife has been taken by Pharaoh, and although he's rich in possessions, he can't exactly receive God's blessing of the promised seed and all these descendants who will inherit this land without a wife. And so verse 17 says, But the Lord, but the Lord, because he's faithful when we're not. 
but the Lord, because he makes good on his promises. But the Lord will rescue us even when we do not deserve it. So it says, but the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe diseases because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Pharaoh's house is struck with plagues and somehow the connection is made. Did Sarai tell him the truth? Did God reveal it in a dream? Did a servant figure it out and tell Pharaoh? We don't know. Pharaoh could have killed Abram for his deceit, but he doesn't. He calls him in and he asks three questions. What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? And why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? And do we know Abram's response? No. We don't know if there was one or if he just kept his mouth shut and left. But in verse 20, Pharaoh gives an order and Abram goes with his wife and all his possessions. Now, it's pretty amazing to me that Abram got out of this mess richer than he started. Only God can take a mess we make, rescue us, and make sure we are better off than when we started. The next few verses accelerate over some unknown amount of time. But I want us to get to chapter 13, verse 4. So let's read these verses. This is chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. He took his wife and all his possessions with him, as well as Lot. Now Abram was very wealthy in livestock, silver, and gold. And he journeyed from place to place from the Negev as far as Bethel. He returned to the place where he had pitched his tent at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai. This was the place where he had first built the altar... And there, Abram worshipped the Lord. Abram returns to the altar he first made in Canaan and worships the Lord. Did you notice that he reversed his course? In hindsight, I wonder if he realized he should have done this rather than ever go to Egypt. And again, can you relate? I can. How many times have I gotten myself in a mess only to realize the Lord gave me a way out and I should have just gone back to him in the first place to an attitude of worship and a request for guidance. Abram returned to the last place where he worshiped God and received God's direction. And what's really cool about this story is that it's a foreshadowing of another trip down to Egypt. You see, eventually Abram will have descendants and they will be a great nation. They will also flee to Egypt to escape a famine and they will live there for hundreds of years, eventually becoming slaves. Moses will be the one to lead them out. There will again be plagues and a pharaoh that will send them out with more riches than they came with. Moses, like Abram, will make his mistakes, but God will still come through and save his people, staying true to his promises. The Old Testament has so much we can learn about God's character but also about patterns within humanity, about how we repeat cycles of bad decisions and how God can and does so often rescue us. I don't know how long it took Abram to make the journey from Egypt to Bethel, but he had to walk and he had quite a community of people and animals with him. So it could have been weeks or months. And I wonder if that whole time he was thinking about God's promises, about his experiences in worshiping God and about his future. Maybe he tried to figure out how God could make good on this promise, given that Abram was still childless. Perhaps he spent a good deal of time thinking about Lot, his nephew, as a potential solution to this problem. We don't know. 
But I know these are the kind of thoughts that would be on my mind after a big blunder that God rescued me from. My mind would continuously be at work trying to figure out what God intended next, trying to plan and scheme, and I'd be trying to understand and predict. What we do know is Abram makes a trip back to the altar with all his possessions and his people. And now the next scene we find recorded about Abram's life casts him in a little better light than the Egypt kerfuffle. Let's keep reading through chapter 13. We know he's left Egypt very, very wealthy. And chapter 12, verse 16, told us that Pharaoh gave Abram flocks and herds and male and female donkeys and male and female slaves and camels. And in verse 20, Pharaoh sent him away with all he had. So he didn't lose any of what he brought to Egypt, and he left with more than he came with. So let's pick back up in chapter 13, verse 5. Now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents. But the land could not support them while they were living side by side. Because their possessions were so great, they were not able to live alongside one another. So there were quarrels between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. Now, the Canaanites and Perizzites were living in the land at that time. And Abram said to Lot, Let there be no quarreling between me and you, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself now from me. If you go to the left, then I'll go to the right. But if you go to the right, then I'll go to the left. So, to summarize, Abram leaves Egypt goes back to the place of worship and the land God has called him to. And it's not long before his great wealth brings trouble. Right there is a lesson, isn't there? As humans, we seek wealth and comfort and abundance. And so often we think it's our key to happiness. But our stuff never satisfies and it almost always brings conflict. There's the conflict of protecting your stuff. The wealthier you are, the more you have to protect from thieves or rust. Wealth creates an insatiable appetite for more. It's never really enough. And in this case, it causes conflict between two family members. Abram and Lot are so wealthy that their herdsmen are getting in fights over who gets what grass for the animals. It's not just them sharing this limited resource, but in parentheses in this verses, we have a little note that the Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land. So we've got these limited resources and land and tremendous wealth, large herds, and thus a conflict. So Abram proposes a solution. He tells Lot that rather than fighting over this limited resource, they should separate. And he gives Lot the first choice of the land he wants. So I imagine there's a good chance these two men are up on a mountain and they're looking to the east over this expanse of land that God has promised Abram. And when Abram says Lot can choose left or right, he's probably indicating north or south. Abram and Lot look out, and here's what's recorded in verses 10 through 13. Lot looked up and saw the whole region of the Jordan. He noticed that all of it was well watered. This was before the Lord obliterated Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, all the way to Zoar. Lot chose for himself the whole region of the Jordan and traveled toward the east. So the relatives separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, but Lot settled among the cities of the Jordan plain and pitched his tents next to Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were extremely wicked rebels against the Lord. So Lot looks up 
and sees the whole region of the Jordan. It looks to him like Eden. Did you catch that? Verse 10 says he noticed that all of it was well watered, that this was before the Lord obliterated Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord. It also looks as good to him as Egypt, the well-watered area of the Nile. And Lot, with all of his wealth, lusts for more and chooses the very best land he can see, even though it is right next to wicked rebels. From their position, this land was to the east. Do you remember what direction Adam and Eve went when God banned them from the garden? East. The men who built the Tower of Babel went to the east to find a spot for Babel. East is a direction that always indicates moving away from God. So Lot heads east toward what looks like the most prosperous and luscious land and pitches his tent, not in, but near Sodom. So he didn't get right in the middle of the wickedness, but he got close. And even if you're not a Bible scholar, you most likely know that Sodom was a city of great corruption that ends in complete and total destruction brought by God. And we'll get to that story soon enough. But for now, let's recognize in Lot's decision the commonality among humans to choose what seems to bring the most ease, comfort, luxury, and wealth to ourselves. Lot followed his lust right into a city that would ultimately strip him of everything. He starts out next to it, but it won't be long before we realize that Lot becomes part of it. And so before we learn about Sodom's destruction and Lot's near-death escape, let's just turn back to our main character and see what transpires after Lot makes his choice. This is verses 14 through 18. After Lot had departed, the Lord said to Abram, look from the place where you stand to the north, south, east, and west. I will give all the land that you see to you and your descendants forever, and I will make your descendants like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone is able to count the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be counted. Get up and walk throughout the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live by the oaks of Mamre in Hebron, and he built an altar to the Lord there. Now, what God says to Abram in these verses isn't anything particularly new. He's already told Abram this land would belong to his descendants one day, and he's already told him he would become a great nation. So why do you think God might be reminding Abram of this? Well, if there was any inkling on Abram's part about Lot being the promised heir through which these promises would come true, then Abram might be feeling a little lost or even hopeless at the recent parting with his nephew. Abram is still childless, and God has made these promises that hinge on Abram being able to produce a son, and the closest thing he had was his nephew Lot. So the reminder of God's promises might be critical for Abram right now. God reminds him of his promises, tells him to visually look at the land from every perspective, and then gives this command, get up and walk around the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. And what does Abram do? He gets up and he walks about and he finds a place to pitch his tent and he builds another altar to the Lord. Once again, Abram responds in obedience and worship. He pitches his tent on a plain near the oaks of Mamre. And from here, he can probably have a central living place 
while he walks about and surveys the land that God has given him. Abram trusted God, even though his circumstances seemed to contradict God's promises. I mean, think about it. How could Abram's descendants be greater than the dust of the earth if Abram didn't even have one son? And his closest relative, his dead brother's son, his nephew, had just left him. Yet Abram chooses to obey and worship God. Abram has made and will make more mistakes throughout this narrative, but he demonstrates time and time again that he has the ability to have faith in promises that seem impossible. So I don't want us to miss this point. We've picked out how we can learn about God's character in the Old Testament, how he is true to his promises, how God commits to us regardless of our commitment to him. And we've talked about humanity, how we lust for more, how we often choose what makes us comfortable and increases our wealth, even if it moves us further from God. But here's a positive spin on humans. They can be incredibly faithful in the face of adversity or opposition or hopelessness. We see here in Abram, a nomad far from home, trusting a promise that seemed impossible, willing to give up the best of the land to keep at peace with his nephew, worshiping God, even when God's promises haven't come true yet. This is something to emulate. We can stay faithful. We can trust God when it seems impossible. And so let me ask you, what promises seem impossible for you right now? Can you trust God in your circumstances like Abram did? Can you worship even if it seems impossible to believe that God can deliver like Abram did? Can you return to the last place you really worshiped and heard from God? Yes. Yes to all of that. Yes, you absolutely can. And so can I. And that's what we can take from Abram's blunderings in Egypt and his graciousness toward Lot and his obedience and his worship of the Lord. Worship and believe. Our circumstances never define God's character. He is always true. He is always faithful. He is always trustworthy. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoy what you heard. Don't forget to leave a review and connect with us on Instagram. The Bible is for everyone.